0: All right, all here. Um, thanks so much for joining us, um, and we're just going to get started. So this is another edition, I think this is our fourth one, of our Criminal Justice Live series, and tonight we're talking about failing police reforms. So I'm Bree, a Digital Content Manager at Push Black. And-
1: Hi, I'm Darren Wallace, Senior Content Strategist here at Push Black. Happy to be with you all, and thanks for coming out this evening.
0: Yeah, and we're going to introduce our guest. Um, so first, we have Benji. Uh, Benji Hart is a Chicago-based author, artist, and educator whose work centers Black radicalism, queer liberation, and prison abolition. Their words have appeared in numerous anthologies been published at Time, Teen Vogue, The Advocate, and Ab- so thanks for joining us, Benji.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Hey, hey, and we are also joined here by Alicia Nicole Harris, Ph.D. They are a poet, linguist, Christian, and founding member of the internationally known performance poetry collective, The Striver's Row. They've also garnered over 5 million views on YouTube, toured nationally for the last 10 years, and they performed at the United Nations, U.S. embassies, in Jordan, Ukraine, and elsewhere across the globe. Now, Alicia is also Arts and Soul Editor at Scalawag Magazine, a non POC-led women-run media organization focused on Southern movement, community, and dissent. And lastly, Alicia is also co-creator of Scalawag Mag's Abolition Week. So thank you all for joining us. We're happy to so have
3: you. So happy to be here, y'all. I'm really excited to have this conversation.
0: We are, too. Um, so we're going to hop right into it. We'll start with some more background. Whoever feels called to can go first um, and just tell us a bit about your journey into abolitionist and how you got started in this work
2: (laughs) Uh, you want to kick us off
3: no I'm happy to. I'm happy to second but whatever
2: I can kick us off I can get us started um my name once again is Benji Uh, I go by they them pronouns Uh, I'm originally from Amherst Massachusetts that's where I grew up um but I have been living in Chicago for almost 10 years now um I uh come from a middle class background um I I grew up uh the the child of academics um and uh, also come from a police family so the the poor and working class folks in my family are much more closely tied um to the police and to the military a lot of military vets a lot of uh, police officers and former police officers But I feel like because of those two things, a being middle-class and light-skinned, and then also um, having police officers in my family, I was not raised uh, to be critical of the police system or to to be afraid of police officers. That was like not something that was ingrained in me in my upbringing. Um, And it wasn't until I was 18 years old and I was staying with friends of mine in the Bronx um, that I first had a violent interaction with the police um, where four police officers, attacked me while I was out on a walk. Um, And I had just never been, uh, you know, physically uh, assaulted by a state agent before, I had never been called the things that I was called spoken to the way that I was spoken to. Um, And and really in a lot of ways hadn't even seen police do that uh, in my suburban uh, environment that I grew up in. So that first violent interaction really made me start to think like, okay, what? what is going on with this, with this system and in the structure and what are the ways that I haven't understood it as a middle class and light skinned black person. Um, And that really kind of that initial violent interaction made me start to ask more and more questions about uh, the police and prison system and the more I understood its history, the more I understood its roots, the the more I understood where it actually came from and what it was created to do and why it perennially does the things that it does to black people, um, the more Uh, logical and the more obvious abolition uh, as a solution became to me Um, so it was a long journey but I would say sort of by by my mid early to mid-20s I was like okay abolition I I get it and I'm with it
3: yeah thank you I would say that um, my journey to towards abolition is ongoing and really ramped up in the last Probably about seven years, but especially since um, working with Scalawag and just being challenged by so many of my coworkers on some of the basic assumptions that I had. Um, similarly, uh, I grew up in a military fam. Well, I grew up in a military family, um, and um, yeah, it was just a really big. But being an Army brat was like a really big part of my identity. Uh, my father, my grandfather, um, many of the people that I had been in romantic relationships were with and, um, and it's, it's interesting because as a child, right, I have all of these accounts of police violence against my family, specifically my uncle was killed by the police. Um, before I was born, I never wow. knew him. Um, but my aunt Cherry hmm. had a twin and now she no longer has a twin. Right. And that, um, So that's like a constant reminder. And that was something that I was told as a child, but never kind of really understood. Um, With the police um, right around um, after um, Michael Brown's death. And I was doing my dissertation at Yale at the time and I just couldn't work on my dissertation at all because I was constantly tra- checking, updating, going to, to protests and marches and die-ins and trying to organize friends. Um, and uh, and so I, what I started to do was I started to go to Comstat, which is where the police sort of update um, uh, civilians on all of the crime that's been reported in, uh, in in the city. And so in New Haven, every Wednesday, I went to CompStat. That was just my way of like, I, I want to be involved. I want to know who these people are. I want to be in their house. Um, and the ways that they were talking about um, uh, folks, like my neighbors, um, mm-hmm. me, right, um, just, really, really opened my eyes to the ways in which um, these systems were about protecting institutions, protecting power, um, not about um, actually uh, contributing to the flourishing of life um, in New Haven. And so I think that was really the impetus that really began my abolitionist journey.
1: Wow. Wow, thank you so much for that recapitulation and sharing that history, very powerful narratives, how you came to this work. And sticking with this, um, you all's backgrounds, I have a question specifically for you, Benji. Um, I'm wondering if you could share with our audience uh, a bit about your workshops and how you see public education as a modality uh, of struggle within this fight for abolition. Like, And specifically, I'm thinking about your workshops around trans and queer resistance to policing, as well as your workshop linking anti-blackness to anti-immigration.
2: Whoo! Okay, okay. We're going to get into it. So uh, I think in a lot of ways, you know, I I love uh, what other folks are already sharing, because I think abolition is a journey, not a destination. Um, And I also think that there are so many roads to it, partially because I think it's actually the core demand of so many of the current struggles, um, renting our world apart. Um, It's an important demand for me because it's not just about black people. It's not just about the United States. It's not just about one institution. Um, It's really about, for me, kind of pulling a thread that unravels all of the interlocking uh, systems of oppression that we are all currently navigating on this planet right now. But one thing at a time, um, I think that uh, in a lot of ways. uh, public education and my my original training is as a classroom educator, I think was also a really important uh, radicalizing uh, roadway toward police and prison abolition for me as well. A, seeing um, the intense divestment from public education specifically for poor and working class people, specifically for black and brown uh, young people at the same time. Uh, that cities and towns where schools are closing and where mental health clinics are closing um, and where affordable housing is drying up more and more and more and more money is being spent every year on police on prisons on ice on um, all these different systems of detention surveillance and incarceration and I think seeing the ways that Uh, The young people I cared most about were not being invested in Um, and understanding Mm -hmm. that spending money on policing is not an investment in young people it's an investment in old people spending money on police is not an investment in black and brown people it's an investment in uh, white communities in, investing in police and prisons is not an investment in poor and working communities. It's an investment in the protection of, of the property and assets of the most wealthy and the most powerful. So I think seeing the ways that the young people that I care most about and, and most directly connected to were being divested from every time there was a new investment made in the police and prison system um, was an important part of my trajectory toward um, fighting for abolition as well. Um, but that's also to say that um, I do think education is a really important part of, of movement building and of community building um, and of struggle. I think it's just part of it, which is the, the thing that I, I think is important and as an educator. I don't think uh, education alone leads to radical change, but I do also think it's an important part of and a necessary part of uh, creating the collective struggles that we need, because none of these battles can be fought by individuals—not even—not even hundreds of thousands of individuals. By 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 definition, movements require relationship, and they were and they require interconnectedness um, and understanding what it is that we are connecting around and and lifting demands collectively rather than from uh, disparate points throughout the 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 world and the political spectrum. I think is an important way. Uh, I think it's necessary for us to win. And if we really want to win abolition, Mm -hmm. that requires relationships and that requires a shared clarity around what it is that we're demanding and what it is that we're fighting for. Um, And I think there's lots of ways to kind of look at this, but I even think going from uh, the the uprisings of 2014 and 2015, where in a lot of ways, the primary demand or the primary call was lock up these killer cops and send the, the, the individual police officers who, committed these heinous acts to prison. Only five years later in 2020, seeing the demand overwhelmingly be defund the police and overwhelmingly B, we we're not gonna fix this problem, A, with incarceration, um, but we're also not gonna fix this problem by treating it as an individual issue that each one of these individual officers needs to somehow be held accountable through incarceration. Rather, this whole entire structure, no matter where you are, if you're in a small town, if you're in a big city, or if you're in the North, if you're in the South, no matter where you are, this entire structure is doing what it was created to do, is working it uh, perfectly it's not dysfunctional it's highly functional and if we want black people to stop being murdered by the state then we need to defund the apparatus that is killing black people and to see that demand really really emerge within a five-year window which is actually a short in a lot of ways a short amount of time speaks to the importance of political education and speaks to the importance of all the conversations all the work all the uh community building that folks did within those five years when there were no massive uprisings happening or there were no you know, sort of major protests happening, a lot of work was happening. And so it's not, uh, mm-hmm. it's not happenstance that from 2015 to 2020, we went from arrest this individual police officer to defund the police. Um, that's a direct result of political education. And I think it shows the importance of again, education when it is tied to action and education when it is tied to community building. Um, And I see education in a lot of ways as like a seed planting. I never know what someone might take from one workshop or one discussion or even one interaction that we have together. But I hope that by planting the idea of abolition in people's spirits and in people's consciousness that the next time there is an uprising because, you know, black people are being killed by the the state as we speak black people are being, you know, multiple black people have been killed just in this last week. Um, So it's a constant it's constant violence that we're experiencing from these systems and given that tragic reality at the exact same time none of us can predict when the next spark will occur and none of us can predict when the next moment of upheaval can happen and I hope that education can play a role in kind of uh, taking us from uprising to uprising and from moment to moment and even when millions of people aren't mobilized we still need to be mobilizing um, in anticipation of the next time that uh, folks are, are, are ready to raise the collective demand and we need to have clarity around what that demand is and why we're demanding it um, or otherwise again there's no cohesion we're all asking for different things instead of as a people um, as a collective and as a movement making one clear demand and I think defund and abolish is that demand for me. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much Benji that was a great way to really kick off the convo education piece because that's what we're all about at Bush Black um, so Alicia am I in your name right yes you are yeah. oh, perfect hey we weren't sure um, can you tell us about the work that you're doing at Scallywag and specifically about abolition week because we want to hear all about that
3: yes um, so similar to what Benji named, I think when we think about education we think about you know how what are the mechanisms in which people gain this kind of information and many of people are relying on this information to come from the media right i mean that is how many of us are getting this whether it's from traditional news sites or whether it's from you know uh, social media or from your favorite um you know, organizer or activist, but much of this information is coming, or should be coming, through um, media outlets. And um, what Scalawag um, has sort of been doing, even before we really understood abolition as our call, as a as a as a media organization, we were working with incarcerated writers, and what we knew was as a newsroom, right the stories of what's happening on the inside of America's prisons were not fundamentally being covered by the media. When you think about how many people are incarcerated in the United States, I think right now it's 2.4 million, but basically it would be the fourth or fifth largest city in America. If you were to take all the people that are incarcerated, it would be you know uh, a, a little less than the size of Houston, a little less than the size of Chicago, right? Which is why, wow. right? Um, that the media, which is supposed to be a safeguard of democracy is not covering what is happening and does not even have access to, um, our prisons to be able to understand what's, what kind of human rights abuses are going on in the inside, uh, is, means that already our understanding of democracy is severely hobbled. And we need to think about, um, yeah, as, as media organization, what is our role in, um, Making sure that the stories on the inside are being communicated to folks on the outside because we have a responsibility to know. Um, prison is not a place where you um, uh, where people are throwaway. That's not what we believe, um, and so we have that responsibility. So we were working with writers who are incarcerated, and that begins to sort of illuminate all of the. Um, sort of these issues around access and education and understanding and policy. And we really thought, well, if we're gonna be talking about abolition, we should really be centering the folks who are political prisoners. And at Scalawag, we take the understanding that all people who are incarcerated are political prisoners, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So we need to be getting their stories, we need to be advocating for them in local media. So that's one big, so that's how abolition week got started. We uh, thought we were gonna do a a series um, with folks on the inside about education and erudition and like study, what does study mean for people on the inside? And then we realized 2020 hit, the pandemic hit, and we realized, oh, folks are dying inside of our prisons and nobody, me, gives a shit. Nobody is being held accountable. Guards are bringing COVID-19 into, right? into jails, into prisons, um, and people are being essentially left to suffer and, and die. And that was unacceptable. So we switched our lens and we said, Abolition Week, we're gonna focus all of our attention on highlighting and profiling the stories of people that are in the inside experiencing these conditions. Um, and that was our first attempt at Abolition Week. Um, what we realized in between Abolition Week 2020 and Abolition Week 2021, right, Um, was that there was a lot of confusion about what abolition was, what calls for funding the police meant. Um, And it was very clear that actually the media was invested in that confusion, Uh, that like the media was actually invested in siding with the narratives of police. Um, There was an account, um, uh, a report that came out by the Texas Center of justice and equity that profiled it was I think it was it was over the course of six years, but they were looking at um, the conversation of jail reform, and they were looking about how they uh, I think they um, surveyed 36 newsrooms and over 200 articles um, in the Houston area and Harris County, and what they found was was that after 2020. Um, there were actually more negative evaluations of bail reform by these newsrooms than at, than before the uprising right and so what you're really looking at is media um, censoring right and and, and, and and publishing these false narratives about bail reform right um, to to prime people to believe that calls to defund the police or calls to abolish the police were um illogical um impractical and also very dangerous right it was saying, Oh you know um x number of people who were released on bail reform were um were um, were uh were reconvicted of crimes when they had when they had just been arrested they had not been charged right so you can't even that this is false information it's also bad reporting right I mean there's one ethical and then there's another um so at Scalawag this year abolition week is really our attempt to kind of explore um what my coworkers c- calls copaganda right like what are the ways that the media is actually invested, and not just media in terms of news, but also we think of shows like um, Law and Order SVU or um, the things that that really shape people's imaginations about what the police are doing, right? Somebody watches SVU and they think, oh, I'm gonna call the cops and the police are gonna show up at my door and stop this person from doing X, Y, Z. No, they're not. No, they're actually not, right? um mm-hmm. they don't cops don't prevent crime from happening right so so right and, but 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 if you look at these at these narratives right it's training people to believe that that is the case so if we're going to go um you know and do as Benji says is really think about political education we also have to wrestle with the very real reality like that that people are actually trained think this way. It's not just like a a moral default that people or a moral problem that people don't see um, abolition as the only way forward, right? They've been trained all their lives to think it's completely um, uh, preposterous. Um, And so it's, so as a media organization, we understand that as a journey, we understand that it's our job to be continually giving people the information. That they need to divest from these systems because we recognize that it's at the systemic level, but also each individual has to themselves commit to the work and the practice of divesting from these systems, divesting from these practices. And 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 so we're so what that's what we do for our readers, um for consume our content. And then as a media organization, we hold other newsrooms accountable. Um, and that's a huge part of what I think, you know, one of the main roles of our work is, um, as just an organization is to speak truth to organizations that are bigger than us. And we know that we do this. We know that, you know, the New York Times low-key trolls us and, you know, and that's fine. And we're great. We're, we're glad about it, but we want to recognize that like, you know, if there are um, organizations that are calling people who are incarcerated inmates or felons, right? We're gonna come after them, right? We're going to, because we recognize that we have to use whatever we have at our disposal to advance abolition in whatever capacity we can. Um, And that's at the individual level and also at the system level.
1: Wow, thank you so much. You all are doing such amazing work. Um, I want to kind of stick with this thread around propaganda, and specifically around today's conversation, really centers reforms. There's so much propaganda uh, around the efficacy of police reforms, but we know that police brutality is still an epidemic, right? Every time we see it and people talk about solutions, we often hear this word reform. But we know it has a terrible track record, and we felt, just to contribute to this public education campaign urging folks towards abolition, we felt it would be important to unpack some of these reforms that we just kind of know don't work, but maybe some of our audience members aren't too familiar. Um, so with that said, I'm wondering if you all could speak to um, certain specific police reform efforts that may be happening in your cities right now. And we have a list of different reforms we kind of go through, like maybe like one by one, two by two. Um, but just to kind of open this up, we want to discuss civilian oversight and in tandem with that uh community policing do you all see this as a viable method for reforming the police civilian oversight and community policing no
2: <laughs> do, you, do you want to kick us off on this one how you want to do it I, i'm i'm i'm
3: gonna there's a there's a there's a story that I want to say, so I'm going to let you go, and then I'm going to just give an anecdote that's going to...
2: True, true, true. Okay. Um, yeah, there's a lot to say. Y'all be asking the multi-layer questions. There's a lot to say in response to that question. I, I would start by saying, uh, here in Chicago, I was a part of a campaign, a youth-led campaign called the No Cop Academy campaign that went from 2017 to 2019, and was fighting the construction of a uh, $95 million police training facility in the predominantly black, predominantly poor and working class uh, neighborhood of Garfield Park on the west side. Um, In Chicago, uh, in 2012, uh, the city closed half of its free mental health clinics, so we went from having 12 uh, free mental health clinics to six. And then in 2013 Chicago closed 49 public schools which was the largest sweep of school closings in U.S. history um, and which impacted 88 percent black students so overwhelmingly was done in black neighborhoods and 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 two black families and black communities um and to to 93 if I'm not mistaken um students and families living below the poverty line so I really uh intense targeting of black poor and working-class communities um, in an effort to push them out. Um, And then only, that was 2013, so then only four years later, um, suddenly the city wanted to make this massive $95 million investment in the Chicago Police Department when it couldn't find, for example, uh, it was two and a half million dollars that they couldn't find in the budget to keep the mental health clinics open. Um, and then suddenly we have $95 million to the police, to give to the Chicago Police Department, which at that time already received $1.7 billion annually. Their budget is now $1.9 billion um, because Lori Lightfoot, our current mayor, who's a black lesbian woman, um, upped their, upped their uh, uh, budget by $200 million from 2021 to 2022. So per um, Alicia's point, we're seeing actually an intense backlash um, on the policy level to the demands of 2020. We're seeing increased spending, increased criminalization, um, and increased investment in these reforms. Um, And one of the ways that looks here in Chicago um, is the COP Academy, which is slated to be built um, in Garfield Park, uh, was announced last year is going to include a boys and girls club. So that's that was sort of the city's way of sort of trying to cover their own ass of being like, okay, we heard you all say we, you wanted community investment. So this new ninety five million dollar, you know, state of the art police training facility, which we're building up in the middle of a poor black neighborhood, um, is going to have a boys and girls club where um, young black people in the community can build trust um, and can. Strengthen their relationship with the Chicago Police Department, Um, and so this is horrible for any number of reasons, more than one reason. Um, But what I would say the fundamental thing that is wrong with this is that it uh, a uh, equates police violence to a lack of trust. It, It blames. Black communities Mm -hmm. for police violence um, by saying, oh, the reason there's this tension between Black people and the police is that Black people don't trust the police. So we need to work on building trust and restoring faith in the policing system, which A is blaming Black people for police violence and and blaming Black people for their own deaths at the hands of the state. Um, But B is again about trying to reestablish faith every time there's a crisis of faith in the police and prison system. Um, and what we as abolitionists are really trying to get folks to wrap their minds around is the crisis is actually what we wanna lean into. The lack of trust and the lack of faith is actually exactly where we need to be invested rather than trying to restore faith or restore trust. Again, that that creates the false narrative intentionally that the police system was built to love and protect and and uh, create safety for black people and just somewhere along the line we got off track and we need to restore faith and restore trust rather than the police and prison system was built uh, as a direct outgrowth of chattel slavery the police and prison system has its roots in police in in slave patrols has its roots in um, indigenous genocide has its roots in quashing worker rebellions and Uh, curtailing the rights and freedoms of poor and working people and it's again doing what it was created to do and doing what it was always uh what it has always been doing um and every time we see these reforms what's at the heart of them and this is not to say we 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 can't break down the individual reforms but what is at the heart of all of them is trying to get people to restore their faith in a system that is designed by nature to and to yeah. harm them so it's it right it's thinking oh if, if there's more black police officers will be safer if there's more women if there's more trans and queer people if police have diversity equity and inclusion training if police are taught how to deal with a mental health crisis right all of these things are fundamentally about restoring faith and trust in the police system rather than underlining the lack of faith underlining the lack of trust and saying right this system is actually doing what it was always intended to do and it's going to keep doing it the more we invest in it, and the more trust and faith we put in it, the more of us are gonna die yeah. truthfully. And the only way out is actually by continuing to to uh, highlight and to actually spur that lack of faith and that lack of trust, because it's warranted and it's wise and Black people are are smart and are right to not trust these systems. And instead we need to start investing in other systems. We need to start taking whatever resources they think are gonna are gonna restore our faith we need to not waste any more of those resources on these systems that already get the lion's share of the resources in almost every city and town in this country and we need to actually take those resources and put them into the things that actually create community safety and the other thing i want to say before we get into the the reforms themselves because i just want to kind of lay the foundation is a all these forms are about restoring faith and trust in the police system which is eh, Whenever you hear that, big red X. But B, all of these, uh, all of these reforms are, are decades, if not centuries old. They're things that have been instituted many, 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 many times already. So where we're at is actually already, we've already seen the aftermath of these reforms because we're living it. Many of these reforms that are offered like some new idea have been being instituted for decades, again, in the wake of every one of these tragedies, in the wake of every one of these uprisings. We hire more Black police officers. We do sensitivity training every time, every time. So we've already done these things tens of times and so the violence we're seeing is a result of those forms not working all the data already shows us that these reforms don't work and guess what the data also shows us investing in housing is what makes crime go down investing in education raising the minimum wage um mental health care universal health care we know all the data says if you want crime to go down if you want violence to go down that's where you put the investment
3: here's why you have to look at the actual Like, I, I, oh, oh, there's so much. Okay, let me, so, I lived in Atlanta before moving to a very small town in Texas, okay? I lived in Atlanta. Now, Atlanta closed, well, first of all, in 1990, ahead of the, the Olympics, which happened in 1996 in Atlanta, Atlanta opened a jail, the Atlanta City Jail, right? And it opened the Atlanta City Jail because Atlanta had a, large population of folks who were unhoused. So rather than um, take a root cause, let us address the systems, right? That are enacting and keeping people in poverty and and, and making it difficult for people to obtain and maintain housing, right? The the city did two things. They opened a jail, okay? And they gave people bus tickets, one-way bus tickets. They paid to send homeless folks, people who are homeless, away, okay? Um, That is what the city did, right? And so it became a um, criminal offense, right? That you could get locked up in Atlanta City Jail if you were sleeping rough or sleeping outside, right? Now, what that is is a direct criminalization of folks who are experiencing poverty. Um, And essentially, rather than build housing, the city built a jail. Okay, which even though Atlanta had a motion that would close Keisha Lance Bottoms decided that they were gonna close the city jail, it's still operating. And there are people who are still in Atlanta's jail who are um, being housed there or who are there because they do not have access to consistent housing. Okay, so like, this is why abolition is a ecological understanding of what's going on rather than saying that police Right, and systems of control are gonna make our communities safe. It's actually saying, actually, police could never do that, right? We have to look at investing in these holistic systems that provide people with education, jobs, housing, mental health access, right? And these are long term investments, right? That um, are not just like a, a one and done shop. So in o- Oklahoma, right, during the pandemic, rather than I'm gonna get back to Atlanta in a second but rather than um there was a shortage of a crisis a shortage of teachers and rather than um, invest like in I don't know paying teachers like living wages right um they actually got cops to fill in for teachers in Oklahoma public schools right they were paying cops they're paying cops extra right to be teachers this doesn't make any It doesn't make any sense at all right but it's this idea that police can fix everything um and that's and that is what we're being taught and these are very extreme cases of that jail can fix homelessness police can fix an education crisis and that's what that's what our communities have been historically told over and over and over and what the pandemic is doing is it's shining a very clear light because in 2018 atlanta closed the last Um, uh, homeless shelter in the city in the downtown city area. So now, if you want to go and get um, uh, a place to sleep at night, you either have to one, uh, prove that you are currently um, uh, um, suffering from addiction to get housing to get housing in the hospital, or you have to have a referral, a referral to go to the shelter, right? So when the pandemic happened, I live in downtown Atlanta, which has one of the um, highest instances of homelessness in the city. Um, We have people sleeping outside and setting up camps. And my neighbors are, uh, you know, apoplectic about this, right? And I'm like, but you weren't saying anything when they closed the services for people, right? That is the thing that you, it's not, and so it's not just about protesting the police. It's also about investing in the systems that are actually life-giving. Like abolition, yes, means like abolish, but it also must, it must mean also a presence in divesting and investing that energy elsewhere. Um, And I say that to say this, you know, some talking about some of the specific reforms, you know, body cameras. Well, you might as well, that ain't gonna work, okay? We saw, uh, Derek Chauvin kill George Ford for eight minutes right what did a body camera a body camera is not going to do anything right it's not going to do anything that's number one number two speaking about these thinking about abolition as like a systems problem that it's not just the police it's also the courts it's also the laws it's also right all of these things and I'll give this example um, uh, one of my coworkers, workers published a letter that came with, um, published a letter that came from Samaria Rice, and Scalawag published this letter a couple um, weeks ago. Samaria is the mother of uh, um, Tamir Rice, and she was working with um, the DOJ. She had done a sensitivity training. She had, you know, was, was what they were, they were working together with her to try and get cops to be more, you know, um, sympathetic and whatnot. But she wanted them to open a, a to, to, to convene a grand jury in the case of the death of her son, right? They refused. So even as mm. this black mother, right, is being told trust the system, invest in the system, right? Um, work with us and we'll work with you, right? She's having very close conversations right with folks in the DOJ. She writes appeal letter after appeal letter, I think three or four letters. And they denied her each time when she asked to have a grand jury convened mm-hmm. in the death of, in the murder of the, in the death of her son, right? This is, again, why we have to believe in abolition. Because this woman is investing in the very system, right? She's being told, you know, OK, if you just work with us, we'll work with you. And it's not working. There is no justice in that system, right? Um, for Black people, which is why, right? We can't just waste our time anymore, right? Which is why it consistently victimizes the people who are already victims. It's gaslighting, right? To say, we're gonna help you just follow these steps. Just trust us, just trust us. And then when it comes time, you're ended up, you ended up four years later with nothing. That is the kind of reason why Black folks, folks of color, poor folks, we can't wait right? We can't wait. You've had enough time. And this is the same thing with Reganomics. I don't want it. But like, we've tried trickle down economics for 30 years. It is not working, right? There's got there's It's not working. This trial run thing is not working. Um, So we need to one, not just have the imagination, but two, have the patience and the fortitude to invest Mm -hmm. in these alternative ways of imagining what our systems could look like
0: y'all did that thank you so much benji laid that foundation for us and alicia bring it home with all those concrete examples thank you thank you thank you um so we had some more reforms to go through but y'all hit them all so we're gonna move into the part the meat of it um and talk about some alternatives and bring it home so um can one whoever wants to volunteer just give us like a uh, I don't want to say quick but like a direct definition difference between abolition and reform for those folks who are joining us who you know are just learning about abolition and just getting started on the journey you know what's some pros and cons of them side by side
2: I'll start that off by saying reform i think the important thing to understand is that reform is not bad it's again is the reform taking money power and resources away from the police and prison system or is the reform putting more money power and resources toward the police and prison system is the reform about actually acknowledging people's lack of trust and therefore taking resources away from the system that harms them, or is the reform about trying to restore people's trust and trying to get people again to go along with the system. Um, So defunding the police is a reform, right? I I want to abolish the police. So defunding the police is a reform. (laughs) Defunding the police is a compromise because I want their ass gone today. So, (laughs) So that's important to name. And, and it's part of the reason why defund is being attacked so violently, especially by the Democratic Party. Well, not especially, but including by the Democratic Party, including by Joe Biden in his um, State of the Union. The reason, defo- uh, the reason ref- uh, defund has to be uh, or, or is being attacked so intensely is because it is actually a reform. It's a small, it's a minor step, but it's a step in the right direction. And that has to be nipped in the bud because the, the direction they want us to go in is more money for body cameras, more money for diversity, equity, and inclusion training, more money for recruiting in black and brown communities. And again, red X, red X, red X. Defund is a reform. Defund is a very small, very minor step, but it's a reform in the right direction. Um, no no uh, uh, like freezing pensions or no new hires, or um, no new jails, uh, no new detention centers. These are reforms, because those things need to go the fuck away. Those things need to be completely eradicated. But in the moment, what we can do is say, we got enough of them. We're spending $1.9 billion on the police here in Chicago, we don't need any more police, we got that. So even even saying, we're, we're gonna stop investing any more here than we already have and start investing in the services we've been cutting and closing. That's a reform, it's, it's small, it's not nearly enough, it, it, it doesn't have nearly the urgency that we need. We, we need to go so much further than that. But that's a reform, Th- those are reforms that we should support. Defunding the police, freezing hires, c- commitment to no more investment in police and prisons and instead investing in life giving services, social safety nets that's a start it's a very small start but we haven't even started right yeah we're we're, right now we're moving backwards we're going in the wrong direction right Right. so those are reforms but they're they're small and important reforms
3: and we have to also recognize right that even with our abolitionist aims we also have to recognize that there are people who are still within this existing system as it is so when we're talking about people who are incarcerated we also need to talk about abolitionist reforms that actively um, increase the agency of folks who are incarcerated, right, mm-hmm. um, that 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 increase the, the, um, the, the outcomes for people who are incarcerated. And that is also, a, I think, another part of um, this work within abolition that, for me, doesn't get talked about enough, right, is like, we can't leave behind the folks that are on the other side of the wall. Um, And we think about also how are we centering also their experiences inside of prisons um, and making and bringing that in and making that also a part of our work. Um, So again, like what we're talking about, uh, a a huge part of that for me is making sure that um, you know, there are so few resources provided to women who are incarcerated. And yet that's a growing population within our prison system right, right now. Like women can't get pads. That's such shit that I'm talking about, you know, like, um, women are, 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 excuse me, but people who give birth are being like, are are giving birth chained to their beds, do you know what I'm saying? Like, this is the type of inhumane shit that is happening. And we also need to understand that perform reforms happen outside, but they also happen inside of our prison systems.
1: Wow. Wow, so powerful. You know, a word that came up earlier was uh, imagination. Um, And often when we speak with folks about abolition, um, there's often like this barrier to being able to conceive of a world without police and policing. And in preparing for this interview, we noticed that both of you have a a very extensive arts practice. And I'm just curious, uh, how has artistry really shaped your own abolitionist beliefs and approaches? And do you see a place for creativity in the abolitionist movement right now?
3: Absolutely, because we're creating a world that doesn't exist. I mean, the has never existed, right? I mean, we're trying to get there. And so I think there's this understanding of not just a need for imagination, but also a need of great faith. It faith in one another, right? Faith in human capacity, faith in the relationships that we build, right? I mean, I think one of the things that happens is if you look at policing, okay, if you look at it, I'm I'm giving this example right somebody's neighbor has their music turned up loud right and rather than go across the street and and knock on the door and be like hey can you turn your music down right we call the police right I don't call the police Mm -hmm. but some people some of our brothers and sisters call the police okay they shall not be named but y'all know who y'all are now the question for me is what do you have faith in at that moment because Mm. you clearly don't have faith in your neighbor you clearly don't have faith in the relationship that you have with your neighbor you clearly don't have faith in that if i ask my neighbor for, for something for me that we have a relationship where you care about me and i care about you and rather we're giving that faith right to an alternative system right to take care of the um difficulties interpersonal relationships right um, to, to, to take care of the risk of interpersonal relationships and what we actually see is that without that co- connective tissue <laughs> connecting us together we're far more likely to do all sorts of um, harm to one another right so I think there's got to be this 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 creative practice of relating to other human beings and for me the arts is one of the ways that gets me in touch with what it means to be human and expands mm-hmm. Capacities for empathy and understanding beyond my specific experience. And so I think that we need to be centering radical kind of understandings of, hey, here are the tools that you have as an individual. How can we utilize that? Because we're going to need everybody that we can get, because we're in the minority now. Like, we got to need everybody that we can get, right, to participate in abolition. So I'm thinking of folks who, an organization based out of North Carolina, like Growing Change, right? They're a youth um they're they're a youth-led organization and they flipped a prison right there was an abandoned prison and they're like we gonna turn it into a farm and we gonna provide housing and we're gonna have a mental a wellness center right and so like those are creative ways and they're coming up with yeah i can talk about this they're coming up with a guidebook and they're giving and they're distributing it because there's 300 closed prisons in different communities, communities that have been divested from, who were then offered prisons as a way of invested investment. You know, like that's a crazy thing that happens, especially in rural communities, um, right? But so they're distributing this guidebook to say, hey, you can do this too, right? If you've got ideas, if you've got resources, here's how you can imagine, right, to take this apparatus and turn it into a li- something that is life-giving. Um, so those are the kinds of ways that you can, there are uh, the kinds of ways that, that you can imagine a world, because if it's easy to imagine evil, you know, it doesn't mean that we're incapable of imagining good. Um, it just means that we've, we've, we've watered and we've nourished these pathways towards suspicion far more than we've watered and, nour- and nourished the pathways towards trust.
2: Um thank you I love that response and I would echo it by saying art creative space these are places where we invest in ourselves and invest in each other and these are places where we build understanding deeper understanding of ourselves deeper empathy for others and a I think arts Uh, has a really important role in education because black people deserve art um, and poor working class people deserve art and investment in art, investment in arts programming, investments in art spaces is an abolitionist demand. We deserve exactly as like beautifully laid out and as the young folks in North Carolina are already doing, like we deserve beautiful, bright, creative, growthful, nurturing spaces not police and not prisons Um, so a art is an art is an antidote to to violence and to trauma um in police (laughs) and prison system never will be never was never will be Um, but b i think um it's it's difficult Um, and i think folks who are artists which i would argue all of us are um understand that you know, the process of, of rejecting what you don't want is a lot easier than the process of imagining what you do. And um, even for for folks who have been fighting this fight for a long time, I think for myself, it's really easy to be like, here's what's wrong with this reform. Here's what's wrong with what how y'all are doing this thing right now. Here's how it's gonna fuck everybody up. And it's a lot harder to, to actually clarify and and clearly envision, okay, but what is the thing that I do want? I know what I don't want, but what is the thing that I actually do deserve? And, the example of, of the, the neighbor calling the police on someone's loud music, it shows which, which any one of us could observe on any given day where we live. Um, it shows not just the ways that we have as black folks have stomached the propaganda about the police and prison system as something that is here to protect us and here to solve problems in our community rather than an, an intrinsic source of the problems our communities are facing. I think on an even more heartbreaking level, it shows the propaganda we've digested about ourselves, that that we are afraid of other Black people to the point that we are calling in uh, these violent racist white supremacist apparatuses on other Black people. And, you know, a lot of times when you first introduce even just the word or the idea of abolition or the idea of no police, the idea of no prisons, folks know you know the first set of questions you get is well but what about the rapists but what about the murderers you know if we just get rid of police it's going to be wild it's going to be chaos people are just going to start killing each other it's like that says something about what we think about ourselves that says something about what we think about ourselves and the members of our own communities um because it's not true <laughs> it, that it, the police and prison system is not holding back all these violent, dangerous people from unleashing their horribleness. The police system is in fact the source of sexual violence. The police and prison system is in, in fact a source of murder and of trauma. And we know that when it's someone we love and care about, we actually often don't turn to the police and prison system. When it's our partner that's struggling, when it's our mom that's struggling, when it's our sibling that's struggling, our first thought is often not, well, lock them up. They're using, lock them up. They stole something, send them to jail. When it's somebody we actually love and care about, we, the first thing is, okay, they need, they need help, they need treatment, they need someone to go talk to them, they need someone, you know, they're struggling financially, let me give them a couple of dollars. Like when it's somebody we care about, that's our first response long before we go to turning to the police and prison system. So again, I think actually questioning why we're so quick to go there for someone we don't know, why we're alienated from someone who lives right down the hall from us, right across the street from us, why we don't have a relationship with that person, because if we did, we'd be way less likely to turn to the police and prison system to deal with them. And I think actually art plays an important role in all of that, in again, helping us imagine what it would be like to actually know our neighbors, helping us imagine what kind of cultivating in our building, on our block in our neighborhood that could help build those relationships that we could actually lean on in moments of crisis. Um, And again, actually reconnecting with our own humanity and reconnecting with the humanity of the people around us to really ask like, is this actually what this person deserves? Is, Is this actually the best way to deal with this crisis?
3: But what you're talking about again is this very ecological understanding of things that take time. Yes. it it takes time to build relationship, right? It takes absolute. it takes inconvenience to build relationships. And like, I'm gonna use this quote because it always hits me in my heart, but it's by Wendell Berry. And he says, you know, care is the standard of the nurturer, but efficiency is the standard of the exploiter. And Mm -hmm. I think that like, what we are saying right is that like it's far more efficient right i don't have to know you i don't have to think about your humanity i don't have to be involved i don't have to do understand what when june jordan says we are each other's bonded magnitude right i don't have to understand that i don't have to right if i can call the police and that's their job right it's their job to handle everything that i don't want to deal with right and i'm actually it's not right and they're not handling it well and they never have right it's your we are in fact each other's bond and magnitude right and so this idea of reinvesting again reinvesting in not uh community policing right like not community policing we're investing in right we're just investing in community we're investing in ourselves we're investing in our relationships we're in intergenerational relationships, right? So when somebody walks down the street, oh, you say that's, you know, Kiki and them or that's whoever, you know, when somebody whiling out, you're gonna say, hey, 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 I know who they are, right? I know, I, I have a context. I have a whole context for this person. When we think about slavery, right? What it essentially said was the individual humanity of, of, of somebody who's Black can be denied for the sake of uh, economic uh, convenience, right? So that's what we're saying. So we're saying somebody's humanity can be denied for the sake of convenience, right? And even when we're talking about right um, issues when harm is committed, right, and people are are incarcerated, we're saying somebody's individual humanity can be sacrificed for the sake of convenience, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do with this person, which is why abolition is not just about right. Um, you know, uh, establish it, what does abolition look like? It's actually, what does justice look like? Because sure. you also have to say, like, I, I have to, I have to have a um, in a radical imagination, right, for how I can repair bonds that have been broken, right? And so when we're thinking about, when people are yeah. using questions about like, oh, well, what about cases of violent crime? Or what about this, right, and people, and even myself have been guilty of turning the conversation away from abolition, right? We actually have to recognize that abolition is actually big enough to handle that. Because right. if you're thinking about the the systemic harm, right, that, um, that our serial systems are causing, then and, and we're saying abolition can deal with that, right, then, we're, then we also should be able to say that abolition can also deal with the interpersonal harms that we experience between one another. Um, and I think that's huge. We can't, we've got to look at both of those things together. Sorry, I don't, uh, but yes.
2: I did a workshop with some young people earlier this week, sort of an abolition 101. And this young person was really trying to, really trying to get it, but was struggling and was like, okay, you know, I hear everything you're saying. I hear where these systems come from. I hear all the violence that they're doing, but I'm still really scared, you know, what, what if a really big scary person comes and they just want to hurt me and everyone that I love you know who do I turn to and the thing that I really tried to get him to wrap his mind around was we don't we already don't have a system that that answers that question and it's hard to sit with that and it's hard to wrap your mind around that but literally Chicago we spend almost two billion dollars a year on the police and prison system something like 85 percent of murders go unsolved in the city so even if this police system was supposed to do one thing, you know, find people who have killed someone else and lock them up. It's not doing that. It's not doing that. And so we actually, exactly what Alicia's saying, what do we do when that level of violence happens? You know, A, I think, investments in housing and healthcare and mental health care are what are what going to make the murder rate go down in Chicago so a invest in those things so that less people are committing that type of violence because policing is clearly not addressing it but b we do have to ask hard questions yeah how do we keep each other safe how do we build our bonds in such a way that we can hold community safety as our own responsibility because actually no one's holding it right now exactly
3: if- Exactly. We're not doing the work. We're not doing the work at all. And so policing becomes the, 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 and I mean, as, as the, as the spiritual person that I am, it's the evil because it's actually distracting from the actual problem. The actual question is, what do we do when harm occurs to us? Because as my, co- I'm going to speak for my coworker because they're not here, but Deshaun would argue, right? Legalism does not equal justice. Lock, putting somebody in jail does not actually solve the issue of somebody being killed or somebody being harmed or you know abused in this way and, and it doesn't actually do that right so it it may make us think that just that somebody is paying right because we're punishing them for what they have done but punishment isn't actually it doesn't restore what was what was what was lost you actually have to have alternative ways of grieving what actually was lost, right. And this is not to say, you know, this, I'm not saying this is easy, right? This is the actual community work. This is actually the spiritual work. This is actually like the heart of the matter, right? The heart of humanity is what we're talking about here at this point, right? But, 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 but what we're doing is we're saying that individual instances of harm demand us creating systems of harm to regulate instances of harm. And that does not make any sense. I say.
1: Well, my job. <laughs> gosh, thank, thank you.
0: Um, oh, go ahead, Darren.
1: Oh, no, I um... I didn't know. No, this has been amazing. (laughs) No, no, no. I didn't have anything intelligible to say. Just so much to kind of digest. Um, Thank you all for just speaking to the need. Or really just framing abolition through, really, it it calls for like a total transformation of society, right? It's not just limited to one aspect, right? It's not just limited to like the... most visible carceral systems. Um, It intersects with um, capitalism, it intersects with patriarchy, all these elements come into play here. And thank you so much for just kind of clarifying that for us and for our audience as well. Um, Yeah, we were just gonna move to kind of wrap things up. Um, Bree. I know you had a a very fascinating question around what other resources folks could tap into?
0: Y'all kind of dropped some here and there throughout the conversation. So we just wanna bring it back around what resources benji we know you have a great zine Uh, websites books wherever you want to point obviously scallywag magazine wherever you want to uh point folks to that are tuned into the conversation let us know and after that where people can tap in with you follow your work and what you're
2: doing go ahead benji thank you um i uh, just co-wrote a zine with Project Nia um, called Practicing Abolition Creating Community that's sort of like a, a 101 what is abolition what do we want what are we demanding um, and why we need to divest both in terms of money but also in terms of trust and faith um, from the police and prison system so I would love for folks to take a look at that and please share it you know read it for yourself but also share it I also wanted to shout out Critical Resistance has a great infographic of abolitionist reforms versus reformist reforms. Um, And I think that's just always a good cheat sheet of, is this reform, uh, sorry, um, is this reform helping us divest from the police and prison system, or is this reform wanting us to invest even more in it? So I would highly recommend that little cheat sheet from Critical Resistance. As for me, you can always find me at BenjiHeart.com and my IG is Benji Femini and my Twitter is R-A-D-F-A-G-G. And I definitely hope folks will stay
3: in contact. Um, there are so many resources. Um, Scalawag loves the South and is about the South. And we really think abolition uh, must be conceptualized as a Southern project because of the, the origins of policing in America. Um, so we... So I recommend that you follow us. Uh, and um, we have Abolition Week coming up in June of, of this year. For we're act- It actually starts um, the day after uh, Juneteenth. Um, so you can follow us. Our, our magazine is scalawagmagazine.org. And we're on Instagram at Magazine and on Twitter at scalawagmag. Um, but yeah, there's a ton of books. Um, uh, we Do This Till We Free Us. Um You know, definitely check that out. Um, some local organizations which actually kind of have frameworks for thinking about su- successful actions um, to divesting and limiting the um, uh, the um, the scope and control of the police um, highly recommend looking at Durham beyond policing. Um, they were able to actually um, get Durham to be the first and maybe only city in the United States to, uh, um, to no longer do, um, police trainings with, um, the Israeli military. Um, and so many, many, many cities do. So, um, if you want to look at how they actually worked and organized, um, to prevent that, definitely check them out. Um, and yeah, solitary gardens are folks in, uh, in New Orleans. They do great work on the inside. Um, with folks who are incarcerated and our friends uh, Justice Arts Coalition. um, They work, they're they're artists that work with incarcerated artists on the inside and they have tons of uh, events where you can do, you can have um, art critiques with folks who are on the inside. It's just a really creative way of thinking and expanding our imagination and also building communities um, across the walls. Um, And then, yeah, Texas Center for Equity or Texas Center for Justice and Equity, um, highly recommend them. And then also highly recommend Mourning Our Losses, which is um, led by incarcerated folks or previously incarcerated folks. I'm really talking about It started after COVID-19, just a way to mourn people who had passed, but also thinking about the different kinds of um, struggles and issues that people, that are facing folks on the inside. So I also want to lift up those folks. Um, Yeah, and follow Scalawag, and you can follow me at Poppy in the Wheat. Um, That's every handle that I own. (laughs) All
1: right, all right, wonderful (laughs) resource. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm sorry, what's that? I just want to shout
2: out one more uh the, the resource list is long which is another good thing um but becoming abolitionists uh by derricka pernell um also just came out this last year and is one of my faves um that's another great book if you if you're if you're reading and you like books that's a good that's another good starting place Oh,
1: wow, thank you. That's a wonderful resource to segue into my own last question. I'm curious for folks joining us today. uh, Maybe folks are just now hearing about abolition, maybe just now becoming interested. What would you say to folks to get involved right now in the abolitionist movement? What advice would you give them to get started on their journey?
2: I would say start where you are. Um, which means literally start by building relationships within your own community. Um, get get to know the people in your building, get to know the people in your neighborhood, because that's actually where so much of the work that we need is going to happen. Um, so start by building trust and building relationships within community, because um, that in and of itself is a divestment uh, of trust um, and of faith in the police and prison system. Um, but B, um, connect with, local chapters of the movement for black lives um if there is a defund campaign uh happening in your town or city get linked up with them if there isn't think about starting one Um, if you're on a college campus um think about defunding and abolishing your public safety department think about uh defunding and abolishing uh the the police on your campus they are also the police they are also the prison system um and uh, any efforts for demilitarization, any efforts for um, uh, defunding and abolishing, again, not just police and prisons, but ICE, the military, the Department of Homeland Security. Um, these are all interconnected systems. These are all anti-black systems. These are all systems of um, punishment, incarceration and white supremacy. So anyone in your, in your vicinity who's fighting for the defunding and abolishing of any of those systems, link up with them, um, join in with those calls. Um, And if if those folks aren't in your vicinity, then you might be perfectly positioned to to lead the call yourself.
3: Yes. Also thinking about efforts, you know, there are state efforts that are trying to be advanced to make it um, illegal for nonprofits to be able to um, pay people's bail. Um, So there are some policy issues that you can actually go after as well. Um, There are... Again, the thing is about, you know, it's like, where do you start? Well, you could actually start anywhere because the carceral system is everywhere. So, you know, uh, it's in your school, it's in your grocery store, it's in, you know, it's everywhere. Um, So, even though it feels vast, I like want people to really understand this is ongoing work, right? This is work that I might not end up, probably won't in my lifetime. This is how we just earn a spot next to our ancestors. This is how we just invest in the next generation to, to, to give them, to say we struggled and we did a little bit more and here you go, right? So this is not yeah. something that is just tomorrow and, 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 and done. So I need you to understand that yes, urgency, but also like consistency so do what you can to show up every day and take one step towards abolition right and if we keep moving in that direction together eventually god willing we'll get there
0: thank you and darren you want to take it home
1: Yes, yes, oh my goodness. Um, you all have shared a, a wealth of knowledge with us today. Thank you for the library of bibliographies and mediographies you shared with us and our audience to learn more about abolition. And through our conversation, we really learned that these reforms continue to fail us. And most attempts at reforms that put resources back into the carceral system, they actually increase the targeting of black people and violence that really <laughs> harms black and brown communities. So police reform just does not work. Um, on any level, because the system really built on white supremacy is beyond reform. So thank you all. Thank you so much, Alicia. Thank you so much for Benji. Thank you for just clarifying why the need for abolition is the best path forward for Black liberation. And thank you so much to our wonderful audience and all of your questions. I'm Darren Wallace. I'm Bree. <laughs> Benji, Alicia, thank
0: you. Bye. Bye. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Thanks for having
2: us. Thanks much for thank joining. you so much for joining
0: Take care.